so much love, good people. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Wally. If I have not met you, I'm the teaching pastor here for Walker Harbor. And this, this morning is the first Sunday of the season known as Advent. So we are in Advent um, this season. So it started for many people, the Advent calendar started December 1st, but this is the first Sunday of Advent. And so I just want to give you a little bit of a picture. And I think this has been really meaningful to me, a, a, a little bit, maybe a different picture of Advent uh, that is, I think, very helpful and, and beautiful for us today. And then uh, each week we're going to um, step into kind of a ritual practice of gathering around the Advent wreath uh, as families, having a little bit of a reflection and a prayer together. Um, but leaning into that, the, the idea of Advent to, is we typically understand it as active anticipation, but here's where I think we need a little bit bigger perspective. Uh, living in the late 11th and then into the early 12th century, St. Bernard of Clairvaux taught how, and I love this, we know that the coming of the Lord is threefold, threefold. The first coming was in flesh and weakness. The middle coming is in spirit and power. And the final coming will be in glory and majesty. The three are, then one, Jesus' birth. Two, God coming into our lives, spirit, here and now. And then the final, three, the final is the final fulfillment, Jesus' return. So we need this middle advent of the now and here, which is an advent of near, an advent of nearness. We need this today. So Bernard goes on to say, if you wish to meet God, go as far as your own heart. Yeah. So each week leading up to Christmas, we're going to take a few minutes to situate, situate ourselves around the Advent wreath. We will listen to a reflection and a prayer with the intended purpose. The reason we do this is of grounding ourselves in the middle Advent, the now and here while we reflect on the first Advent and ache for the final one of restoration and the peace of Christ in fulfillment. Are you with me? Yeah. So what I would love to do is I'm going to invite uh, Derek and Alyssa up, and they're going to lead us in our first Advent reflection and lighting of the candle. So thank you, uh, Alyssa and Derek, uh, for sharing. Good morning, everybody. All right. We're going to start out in Matthew 1, verse 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. We light the first candle of Advent to help us remember hope. Hope is the feeling you get when you are sure you will receive something you want, or when you are sure things will be okay. When Joseph heard the angel's message, he felt hope. The birth of Jesus gives us all hope. Hope is a Christmas gift that won't break. To pray, um, God of hope, we, press you, we bless you for the season of Advent and the gift of hope. Help us to prepare our hearts for your coming and to remember the true meaning of Christmas. Amen. Amen. 
All right, if you um, would join me, I, I'd like to just add on a word of prayer, and then we'll step into our teaching time. Uh, gracious God, I bless you for the gift of gathering, uh, spending this time around the Advent wreath, reflecting on your gift to us, the gift of hope that you continually give us. Uh, I bless you, God, uh, for Derek and Alyssa and just uh, taking the time to share uh, this with us and invite us into it. Um, and God, as we uh, continue to dig into uh, the scriptures, we uh, invite you to speak to us in all of the ways, in any of the ways that we uh, need to hear from you. And so God, as the psalmist uh, said, may the posture of my heart and the meditation of my heart, the words of my mouth, may they bring glory and honor to you and you alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen. Uh, we uh, are stepping into week two of our teaching series, The Songs of Christmas. And the idea, idea is we're looking at some of the uh, hymns or, I mean, we might even think Christmas carols, and we're taking a song each week and kind of looking into its context, where it came from, and then the text in which inspired the song or that it was completely drawing from, if you will. And so we're looking into that to, to kind of dig into this season of Advent, the birth of Christ, uh, what we often think of as the nativity scene, that idea. And so this morning, the song, the hymn, is O Come All Ye Faithful. And I've enjoyed jumping into this, nerding out on, on these songs. It's fascinating the context that came uh, from these songs or that surround these songs that come to us. So um, we're going to start there. In Latin, which is where it was originally written, this song was Adeste Fidelis attributed to various authors. They actually cannot land on who was the original author of it, but it's most widely credited for its popularity to the English hymnist John Francis Wade, this fella. Uh, so we'll put him up there. Uh, I mean, you got to think his name, his nickname was Sideburns because that is fantastic, right? Hey, Sideburns, what, what song do you have for us? Um, <laughs> uh, so in, he lives 1711 through 1786. He gets credited with it most uh, historically, although it's unlikely that he penned it. Uh, the earliest printed version is in a book published by Wade, which is accompanied by a manuscript by him, dated 1751, and is currently held by Stonyhurst College in Lancashire, England. It is traditionally the final anthem during Midnight Mass at, at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Next picture. This was uh, St. Peter's uh, just a few weeks ago when Sarah and I were there. So when we were leaving, so they... Uh, this is the final anthem during Midnight Mass at St. Peter's, quite stunning. Uh, it's a call to worship, and when we hear the Latin, the way it would be, the, the hymn's words be, Venit Adoremus, which is, O come, let us adore him. It's strewn throughout, we hear this in liturgies for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany these seasons. Uh, part of the song reproduces the Nicene Creed. And here is where it gets fascinating. The context of the life of John Francis Wade, who often gets most of the credit, as an 18th century Catholic layman and hymnist, brings all sorts of interesting shape to the song. He lived in an English Catholic community that was exiled to France after the failed Jacobite Rising of 1745, more commonly known as the 45th rebellion. That rebellion tried to restore Catholic monarch Charles Edward Stuart, known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, 
to the throne of England. The UK musicologist Bennett Zahn claimed that the hymn can be interpreted as a call to arms for faithful Jacobites to return with triumphant joy to England, in parentheses, think Bethlehem in the song, and venerate the king of angels, that is the English king, Bonnie Prince Charlie. So essential to the hymn's ongoing popularity, though, was its translation into English. The most influential was in 1841 by the Anglican priest Frederick Oakley, not of the sunglass fame, spelled differently, <laughs> but the original, the original text translated into English often left worshipers uncomfortable by its ending. Next slide. This was how it originally ended when they translated it from the Latin into the English. We hope to die shouting, we hope to die shouting, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. The, why, how come we don't sing that? And so, in the 1870s at Bath Abbey in England, Though Troubles Assail, a poem by curate John Newton replaced Wade and Oakley's text and gave it a little bit more of what we sang this morning, well, that was a bit more encouraging. <laughs> Fascinating, right? Now, some famous recordings of this song, John McCormick in 1926, Mahala Jackson in 1955, Nat King Cole in 1960, the original Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews in 1975, and Westminster Abbey Choir in 2013. How fascinating. I find it incredibly fascinating, especially a hymn that holds such reverence and a summons to humbly kneel before the Christ and adore the Christ, yet it has a history of being hijacked and baked into militarism and rebellion. How interesting. Now, that aside, we're going to sink into the scripture, which is really the thing behind the thing in which this hymn was inspired. And I want to tell you up front, how many times we'll see uh, that I say within this, I want to let you know right up front that this story. I do not like it. It makes me very, very uncomfortable. That is why. Because it raises a lot of questions for my own life, let alone for the church-wide. This story is uncomfortable. Now, you're thinking, what an earth story are we talking about? This story is provocative and very disruptive, and yet we read it every year with the common scene gathered around the fireplace with little Jenny and Freddie cuddled up in their footy pajamas, sipping hot cocoa, listening to Ma in her nightgown and Pa in robe and kerchief, reading in their best theater voices. <laughs> You're welcome, that's how I thought of this. <laughs> now we're going to sink into the text and you're thinking, what is this provocative text? Next slide. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, astrologers from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly 
called for the astrologers and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they heard, had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, similar to last week, how we sidestepped kind of a deep dive into Caesar Augustus, we are going to also sidestep a deep dive into King Herod this morning. Next week, we're going to do a much deeper dive contextually into King Herod. And then the following week, we're going to do a deep dive into Caesar Augustus on the 18th. Really needed that we're going to do that. And next week, we're also going to have a little Christmas trivia. And I'm going to wreck your nativity scene. You're welcome. It's going to be lots of fun, I promise. We'll have fun with it. It will be great. But... This morning, what we need to know, because we're not going to do a deep dive on those, but what we do need to know for the sake of this story is that Caesar Augustus was the most powerful person in the known world at the end of the first century BCE and through its first decade into first century CE. It was Caesar Augustus who granted King Herod permission to function as king over Israel on behalf of Rome. So Herod is really a puppet king, granted the title king of the Jews by the grace of Rome. Herod conquered and ruled Israel with the support and resourcing of the world's strongest and most ruthless military, the Roman legions. But if one is thought of as a puppet king, that might lead to a ruler who is a bit insecure and a bit paranoid. Two characteristics of Herod. So stay tuned next week as there will be much, much more. But having that holding us, that context, that little bit, Our focus this morning is actually going to be on the characters often called the Magi. Or if translators really want to soften the text for a modern audience, they're called wise men. But that is a really, really thin and I would say poor translation. So, who are these people? Why are they only in Matthew's gospel account of Jesus' birth? And why do their words lead to Herod being frightened and all Jerusalem with him? First, the who question. The term magos in Greek is of foreign origin, used in reference to a magician or sorcerer who might be an astrologer or a dream interpreter. It's also used in the scriptures to describe a false prophet and sorcerer. (laughs) So the definition alone is enough to create religious upheaval, right? Already aren't you like, wait, what? Because how many of us go, oh, wise men, aw, yay! Well, uh, astrologers, magicians, sorcerers. Uh huh. The term had a far more precise meaning in Hellenistic Roman culture as attested through many Greek and Roman writers. The Romans were fascinated with these magi who were originally a cast of highest ranking political religious advisors 
for the Median Emperor, then in the Persian Imperial Court. Most of the church fathers understood them to be from Persia, and then it's a bit blurry on whether or not they were more religious or more political. Now, another significant nugget before we kind of tie some clouds together. In the Persian Empire, understood where they would be from, the great king was known as the king of kings. The divine ruler on earth for the universal high god Ahura Mazda, not to be confused with the vehicle. Now, did we miss that? Sorry. And so we caught it. It's just like, dear sweet heavens, pastor joke. Um, okay. So the Magi, okay. The Magi were the royal priestly assistants of the king of kings particularly in communication with the gods to ensure the productivity, safety, and welfare for the Persian kingdom. We have clear examples of this from highly regarded ancient sources. First, next slide, would be the Magi attend the Persian kings, guiding them in their, their relations with the gods. Seth, this is from Strabo's Geography book, 15, chapter 1, first edition published in 7 BCE. is giving an idea of what they are. Next slide. Then we have the Magi interpret the will of the gods as instituted by King Cyrus, who never failed to sing hymns to the gods at daybreak and to sacrifice daily to, get this though, whatsoever deities the Magi directed King Cyrus to. Thus, the institutions established by him at that time have continued in force with each successive king, even to this day. Cyropedia, the education of Cyrus by Xenophon, written in the 4th century BCE, translated though into English, and you can get it now, Nerds Unite, on Amazon. You can. It's really quite lovely. Now, this is fascinating, right? Painting who these magi. The magis were universally understood to be instrumental in divine revelations as the interpreters of royal dreaming and extraordinary natural phenomena. Magi were found to have played a huge role in the legendary story of King Cyrus. We find King Cyrus in the Hebrew scriptures of the Persians from his birth right through to his death. The point, if you're taking notes and when it's simplified, the Magi are pagan Gentiles who are universally recognized as gifted in wisdom, dream interpretation, and astrology, along with being a mouthpiece for the gods. And we have them in our Bible centrally located with specific directions to follow a star and arrive at the birth of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can clearly remember hearing sermons and church discussions from my childhood right up through to today, warning of the dark magic arts of astrology. Anybody else? Aha! Yet, biblical scholar and religious historian Richard Horsley wrote my favorite book on the nativity, if you will. This is fantastic. Highlights how, next slide, the story in Matthew 2 contains not the slightest hint of criticism of the Magi's astrology. Rather, the star is precisely the way they are led to the newborn king. How uncomfortable, right? We, we just read this and we go, I, well, this is interesting. And when noting that Matthew is the only gospel who places the Magi in the story, we are invited to ask if there is something else going on here. Leaning into these sorts of questions is really helpful. First of all, for intellectual honesty. Second, 
because they can guide us into the broader context. This can lead us to see how Matthew, a Jew who is writing to a Jewish audience first, constantly alludes to or directly references the Exodus. More specifically, Matthew writes the stories of Jesus with a direct comparison to the great prophet Moses. We spent a year going through the book of Matthew and highlighted over and over this parallel that Matthew is doing with Jesus and Moses. By being curious about this, we can begin to see why, a why, for the Magi being so prominent in Matthew's narrative of Jesus' birth. Now, New Testament scholar, and in my imagination, a great friend of ours, N.T. Wright, says that Matthew wants his audience to see Jesus as the new Moses leading a new exodus. Hebrew scripture scholar and teacher Peter Enns refers to Matthew's gospel as revealing Jesus as Moses 2.0. And specifically speaking into the birth narrative starring the Magi, Peter Enns writes this. Next slide. A star millions of light years away can't actually move and then stop over one specific house on earth, nor do stars even appear to do so from our earthly vantage point. So is Matthew a liar? Is that what we're supposed to think? Only if you grade Matthew along with the other gospel writers by a standard they clearly weren't operating under. Next slide. Matthew's portrait of Jesus serves his purpose. He drops into his gospel images of Jesus that remind you of Moses and the Exodus story. Ready? So a guiding star is like the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites to safety across the Red Sea. If you're a first century Jewish person and Matthew is telling this story, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, we know this story. We remember this story really well. We know what you are up to. You know, we know what you're telling us through this imagery. We're invited to see in the way in the first century Jewish people would clearly see the prophet and the story that is bubbling underneath the surface of Jesus' birth. Oh, Moses and the Exodus. Context, context, context. And this is where things get really, really interesting. Because that first exodus was about and for the Hebrew people. And now we have uh, Matthew alluding to a new exodus with a new Moses, led by Jesus from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem in the line of the great King David. And so what do these magi represent? That this exodus is bigger and wider, and it includes all people. You see what's going on here? Because these magi symbolize the world being drawn to a new, ready for it, king of kings. Whoo! Because as astrologers, they knew that when something significant was happening in the heavens, a brilliant star, then it was their job to seek out its earthly counterpart. That's what astrologers do. Because in the ancient world, they believed it was all connected. Imagine that. Creation connected and pointing to something much bigger. How novel and ancient. Yet we need that today. Great. You with me? All right, so what do these magi do when they arrive in Bethlehem and find Mary with her boy, Jesus? Next slide. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, N.T. Wright helps us see that. Next slide. 
Matthew is not telling us all this to satisfy astronomical curiosity, nor is he offering us the kind of cozy picture book story we have created for ourselves out of it with strange but gentle oriental kings bringing gifts to a child in a stable. What he tells us is political dynamite. Jesus, Matthew is saying, is the true king of the Jews. And old Herod is the false one, a usurper, an imposter. Whoa. I will say this over the next few weeks, especially when we sink into Herod and Caesar Augustus. And even in this, when we hear this, one of the biggest complaints slash reasons why some people don't want to have anything to do with the church today is because they say the pastor and or the church is too political. Yet N.T. Wright lets us know this right here and now is political fire, dynamite. This is what's happening now. Here's what I would say. Pastors and churches today are too partisan political. That's a problem. And if a pastor is standing up and saying, you ought to do this, you ought to vote this way and be on this side, I, I am of one, you would have my vote, pull their 501c3 now. Okay. They're nonprofit. Pull it. They've overstepped their bounds. So, anyways, but as in when we sink into this, its context, it was political dynamite. And we're going to see that in the next couple weeks with Herod and Augustus. It's really something. Which is why we have Herod panicking. Herod secretly calls for the Magi to learn the exact time when they saw the star. And why he calls together the chief priests and scribes to inquire where the Christ was to be born. If you are the king and you're asking these sorts of questions, crafting shenanigans to usurp power, then you know deep down that you are not the true king. <laughs> are you with me? And the chief priests and scribes tell Herod where the true king will come from and what his rule will look like by quoting the prophet Micah, which, next slide, goes like this. This is what they were quoting from. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of the Yahweh, his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will what? Reach? Ooh, oh, so when this happens, we're going to be talking about the king of all kings. Matthew's account is understood to be have written in the, the 70s, the decade of the 70s CE common era. So some 40 years after the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So these claims and proclamations would have been massively disruptive to his world then. <laughs> so I would think this text would be wildly disruptive to narrow thinking and small exclusionary religiosity today. Are you seeing some uncomfortableness? I am. We have a story that is situated within the Jewish story, but has transcended it to include all people, announced by some foreign astrologers. Can you see how this is deeply challenging and awkward for the church in our world today? In this story, God was speaking to and through pagan astrologers from a foreign land. And they travel all the way to Podunk, Bethlehem, and crack open their treasure chests and give gifts from either their personal bank accounts 
or on behalf of the king of kings. Then we are told that these magi hear from the divine in a dream, telling them to avoid going back to Herod, which is to say, don't go to this guy because that's death. You're going to, he'll kill you. So, but where, do, where are they told to go? Next slide. It says, they left for their own country by another road. By another road means they took the scenic route home, which was more expensive, costly for them. And by the way, when they get home, they have to answer to the king of kings in Persia about what was going on in Podunk, Bethlehem. Hey guys, what were you up to? Oh, you know, we went to see honor and generously give to the one who is born king of all kings. Are you with me? This story is a global political and religious firestorm. And it's been tucked away in the pages of our Bible for some 1,600 years. Yet we most often tell it or display it as a cute scene that is accessorized with footy pajamas and hot cocoa around the fire. (laughs) We are simply left to wonder in the text what became of these magi. Did they travel home and return to life as usual, being a mouthpiece for the gods? Or did this story, this encounter with the king of all kings, change everything for them? And that question takes me to us in our lives here today. Specifically for me, some recent conversations I've had, and then a quote from the 1980s that really stirs for me. So I arrived on time for a meeting that I had, which means five minutes early. Just have to be annoying. The meeting was at my office, my main office, I should say, which is a coffee house. And I got a text from the person who I'm meeting with and say, hey, I'm a few minutes behind. And I'm like, okay, so in a shocking turn of events, I ran into someone I knew. Sarcasm. Um, She, this woman I ran into, is a business owner, entrepreneurial, start 501c3s, rally the community type. And she began telling me how she had just come from a speaking engagement. And she said that within talking to the crowd she was speaking with about her given topic, she just sort of slipped into speaking about how her faith has shaped or better reshaped how she runs her business. And then it led her to start things and do things she never dreamt she thought she would be doing. She said what has left her, and I want to get this word right, perplexed, was how many people talked to her after her speech, most of which were community leaders, who told her, oh oh, yeah, we're Christians too. So then she asked more about their faith. She said they all pretty much said the same thing in response. Oh, I don't do church or anything. I just believe in God and stuff. She looked at me with a puzzled look on her face and asked, do you ever experience this, Wally? With divine timing, the person I was scheduled to meet with showed up, keeping me from launching into an animated diatribe (laughs) in the coffee house because it was coming. I made general introductions uh, and said goodbye to perplexed lady number one, sat down with a lady who had moved to West Michigan after 12 years in Colorado. She was hired by a parachurch ministry, largely tasked with helping them rethink how they are organized and to get creative in being partners in the community. 
She then said, I'm running into a common theme that has me a bit perplexed. And I sat across the table and I said, it must be in the water. To which she went, what? Sorry, context. But it was funny to me. Uh, she said, most people I talk to say, oh, I'm Christian too. But I don't do the church thing or any of that. She then said, uh, when I press in a little on them, they say, well, I believe in Jesus and stuff. What she said next will not leave me alone. She said she was struggling with a faith that is fixed on ideas about God, but that doesn't ask anything of us or necessarily lead to a life of fruit. And this had me wondering, is faith a fruit we simply enjoy, but not garden, plant, cultivate, in order to hand out sweet gifts to the world around us? This wrestling found further resonance when reading the life of Dr. Reverend Paulie Murray, who passed away in 1985. She was the first black woman ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. When reflecting on her encounter with Christ, she wrote this. Next slide. All the strands of my life had come together. Descendant of slave and of slave owner, I had already been called poet, lawyer, teacher, and friend. Now I was empowered to minister the sacrament of one in whom there is no north or south, no black or white, no male or female, only the spirit of love and reconciliation drawing us all toward the goal of human wholeness. <laughs> Then she goes on in another writing saying, bearing pain for Christ's sake does not mean that I shall participate in my own degradation. It means that I must witness to the equality of all humanity before God in words as well as deeds. If I am a child of God, sister in Christ, and belong with all of you to the priesthood of all believers, then my job is to love, not hate, to be creative, not destructive, to follow Christ's cross. This is the lesson of the great prophets down through the ages, which I would include the actions of these magi in that prophetic message. If you are someone who has been on a journey for truth and meaning and purpose and have entrusted yourself to the care of the Creator and to partnering in the good news of Christ, how has that transformed your life? I would have think that it changed everything for these magi. And yet the question of what Christmas costs us today leads to a very, very different answer than what it cost them. Are you now feeling my uncomfortableness? Can you see why I don't like this story? Because it's incredibly convicting and calling. For these magi, their travels took them far away from everything they had known, geographically and spiritually, all of which would have been understood as considerable risk for them. And upon arrival in Podunk, Bethlehem, they knelt before the infant Jesus and gave gifts from their treasure chests. But as we now know, this is just the beginning of the story. What is the trajectory of this story? In and through Jesus, it is the divine who gives the most costly gift of all. 
Christmas celebrates Jesus' birth, which is the beginning of a life defined by sacrificial love. Jesus models and teaches, in that order, models and teaches a life that extends love to all people. In his inclusion of all the wrong people, according to his society, costs him everything, including his very life. How did we not see this coming? When his birth is announced to lowly shepherds, and then the next group of people to show up and honor him and give gifts are strange, foreign astrologer magicians. Next slide. How does a story about love, which is rooted in sacrifice and is extended to all people, become so small, angry, and claim to be owned by a select few? How did we get here? For me, the song, O Come All Ye Faithful, has expanded in its meaning in light of this. So I want us to just take a moment and sit with the challenge of N.T. Wright as it pertains to Matthew's birth narrative. Next slide. Listen to the whole story, Matthew is saying. Think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews. And then come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. That's what these foreign astrologers teach us. Sacrificial love, an upending of pretty much everything we have known, disruption, to step in and say, yes, to the king of all kings, yes. To kneel, honor, give gifts to this king is beautiful, no doubt, but it is disruptive to a life of comfort and ease and entitlement. We are being invited to see a bigger, wider, very challenging story. May we reflect with this for a moment before we sing. stand together and continue in worship.
usually uh, each week uh, in conversation with uh, my wife, she will hear some semblance of me say, I just can't wait for Sunday to get here. This is my favorite teaching this week. Like, she knows, and she's like, oh, I know, blah, blah. Like, usually it's some sense of, oh, I can't wait, I'm so excited. And she heard me, and it was maybe Monday, I said, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this one at all, and I'm not right now looking forward to this because it is so uncomfortable and challenging because of interactions within my own life, but with others, this makes me think back to a few years ago, I was at this event, banquet, and was honoring like a friend or celebrating. It was this church thing, uh, kind of whatnot and dinner, and then there were all these people sitting around to which I didn't know most of them, and we start introducing ourselves around the table, and all of a sudden, the people around the table, they're like, you are, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm this guy, and I'm like, oh, I pastor, and they're like, oh, what church are you from, and I told them, and they go, never heard of it, which is not surprising, and I go, okay, and they're like, oh, well, I go to this church, and they all told me, because I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing here, and they go, I'm this prominent, and they were political politicians, a number of them, businesses, and they go, I go to that church, it's really big, it's really great for networking. I said, what? And I said, I did, I said I'm a, I'm, I did say I'm a pastor, right? Thank you for your forthrightness, but did you catch what? Oh, I see. In, judgmental, maybe, maybe, and it's okay to put that on me, but the more interactions and when hearing perplexed people, what it began to pick up on is, is, is your faith an accessory? Or is Jesus central, disruptive, powerful, incredible, for sure, transformative in your life? Uh, Wally, ask yourself that first please, and wrestle with it because it's really uncomfortable to know where it takes us, how it disrupts us, how it humbles us. I pray, church, that it, in this season that you are disrupted, interrupted, by the Christ, by the King of kings. May you experience the humility that is brought on by the Christ and the invitation to get lost in a love that transforms everything for us, but also magnifies the goodness, the grace, and the love of an unfathomable God that is imminently close, though. May you experience that even this morning. And may that transform little by little how you walk, you move, and have your being in this world. And how we as a community then go and love and thank well. Because Christ sits center for us. May you do so in the grace and peace of Christ even today. Amen.